You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. So question 23, we're talking about the offices of Christ, and as we'll see, there is a little bit of nuance here. What offices does Christ execute as our Redeemer? Now, we've talked about the covenant of grace, and the only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ. So it goes into now his work. Christ, as our Redeemer, executes the offices of a prophet, of a priest, and of a king, both in his estate of humiliation and exaltation. So this is kind of a heading question. And you can see how it's going to break down. The catechism is going to look at each of those offices that he occupies in his humiliation, prophet, priest, and king, and in his exaltation. So it's kind of a neat way that the catechism um, schedules it. We dealt with his person, two natures, one person, divine person, God-man. Now we begin to deal with his work. And the confession of faith emphasizes his mediatorial work. He's the mediator. So that's the nuance here. The confession will talk about him as our mediator. The catechism here talks about him as our redeemer in his threefold office. There's no contradiction. Uh, It's all true. And it all harmonizes and dovetails perfectly. But it's just something to be aware of. He is at once a prophet, priest, and king, both on earth and now in heaven. Humiliation, exaltation. So it's not as if something changed when he ascended into heaven. He occupies all of those offices at all times as our Redeemer. Technically, he occupies the office of mediator. One office. He is the mediator of the covenant. And that office encompasses three functions, the prophetic function, the priestly function, and the royal function. But again, it's not wrong for the catechism to call these functions offices, because as we see in the Old Testament, there were these three offices, prophets, priests, and kings. So the salvation of the elect, our salvation, has to be accomplished, has to be proclaimed, And it has to be applied to the souls of his people. Any one of those things, you take it away, and there is no salvation of the elect. So he executes the office of a prophet, which was predicted by Moses long before Jesus even arrived on the scene. Deuteronomy 18.15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you from your brothers. Now, why would he say like me? Well, Moses, you remember, was the mediator of the Old Covenant, perhaps the greatest of the Old Covenant figures, one of them anyway. And he's telling his people that God is going to raise up another prophet like him, but whereas Moses was a servant in the house of God, Jesus is the son over the house of God, Hebrews 3. So there is a vast distinction between the two, but in this way, prophetically, they are the same. So he executes the office of a prophet. He executes the office of a priest 
to which all the Old Testament sacrifices, and especially the Passover, pointed. By the way, let me ask you a housekeeping question. Does the, do these notes help you? Is it good to have all these? Because I was told maybe you shouldn't have so many notes on the screen. No, this, this is okay. Okay, good. Thumbs up. <laughs> well, I used to just have nothing, and I found that maybe this would be helpful. So, okay. So he executes the office of a priest to which the Old Testament sacrifices, and especially the Passover, pointed. Psalm 110, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind that you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And you'll remember Melchizedek, the king of Salem, priest of righteousness. He had no beginning and no end, biblically speaking. Now, of course, he was a man. He had a mother and father, obviously. But there's no record of it. So biblically, we don't know where he came from. We don't know what happened to him. So in that sense... He is almost like this figure without beginning or end. That's Jesus. He truly is eternal. So he's a priest like Melchizedek. And finally, he executes the office of a king, of which David perhaps was the greatest Old Testament type. And God says in Psalm 2, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So these are his three offices, or if you prefer, his three functions of the mediatorial office. And each one of them are vitally important for our salvation. Any questions at this point? Any comments? You'll find in the catechetical language, at least in Reformed circles, prophet, priest, and king is just so familiar. It just rolls off. Oh, Rob? He was, um, <clears throat> you remember when Abraham went and he delivered Lot from the kings? You know that story. On its way back, this figure, Melchizedek, king of Salem, he comes out and Abraham gives him a tenth of the spoils and Melchizedek leads them in worship. He's not a Levitical priest, but he is a priest of his own sort. And again, as I said, the Bible has no indication of his genealogy. We have no idea where he came from. He just appears on the scene. And I think the reason for that is to show that he is of a higher order of priesthood than even the Levitical priest. Now, we don't know, again, where he went, what happened to him, how he became a believer. But he is a type, a foreshadowing of Jesus himself. Yeah. And because Abraham paid him tribute, it's as if the Levitical priests gave tithes to him, right? So we can see that his priesthood is far and above what was typical of the Old Testament, just like Jesus is the better priest. He has a better priesthood. Not the blood of bulls and goats, but his own precious blood he shed for the salvation of, his soul, of our souls. Okay? So we go on. He occupies these three offices, or again, branches of his mediatorial office. And each of these offices has a close relationship to the covenant. Mediator of the covenant, functions of the mediator of the covenant. The prophetical office relates to God's promises in our ignorance. Makes known the promises that God has made. This is the importance of this word and spirit. 
If you don't know God and his promise, you cannot be saved, which is why at the beginning, remember, we said it has to be accomplished, proclaimed, and applied. And out of those three, you recognize what has to be accomplished and it has to be applied. Why do you say it has to be proclaimed? Well, because if they don't have a preacher, how are they going to hear? And if they don't hear, how are they going to believe? And if they don't believe, they perish. God has seen fit to use earthen vessels like us to proclaim his precious promises. And these promises go forth. And Jesus occupies his prophetical office in making known the promises that God has made and solving our ignorance. Again, this gets back to the whole emphasis on word and spirit. Our generation needs to hear the doctrine of word and spirit. That's how God works. And Satan has done an extremely good job of diverting the modern church away from the word to the extremes of the so-called spiritual gifts. The priestly office relates to God's holiness and our sin and guilt. We see this especially in the high priestly work of the Old Testament. As Jason goes through Leviticus, we find this is how God enabled us, his people, to approach his holiness, holy throne. There needs to be a priest. There needs to be a mediator between us. He's holy. We're sinful. A holy God cannot tolerate a sinful worshiper apart from a mediator a priestly mediator. Remember Job? He was uh, agonizing, saying, I wish there was an arbiter between us, one that could lay his hand on both, and that's exactly what Jesus does. He deals with our sin and guilt, so he propitiates the wrath of God. And his kingly office relates to God's purpose, fulfilling his purpose, implementing his purpose and his plan, as well as our weakness, and our desperate need for grace. As our king, he bestows saving grace upon his elect. That's his prerogative, his royal prerogative, to give grace to whom he will. And thank God he's given it to us. He's invested with all three offices and became all this to us for our redemption. As a prophet, he is our wisdom. As a priest, he is our righteousness. And as a king, he is our sanctification, the work that he continues to do. And he was appointed to these offices, as you can imagine, from all eternity, agreeing to them in the covenant of redemption. He stepped up and he voluntarily assumed the role of our mediator. And he agreed to perform the functions of the mediator in his priestly, prophetical, and royal way. From all eternity. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the kingly functions in the family, for example. But there is only one high priest. And my concern with that is simply that people would confuse what's going on in the home with what Jesus is doing as our mediator. You know, I get what they're saying. Um, You have the responsibility as the head of your home to kind of perform some of these functions. Um, But there's no way you can mediate between Julia and God. She answers to God herself, right? Uh, You do teach your kids. You teach your family. If they have questions, they're encouraged to come to you. 
Uh, you are the head. You exercise authority. So you can see some of this in there, but again, I'm a little bit concerned about the confusion that might bring. Uh, Laura? Oh, yeah. And giving false information and directing toward the future rather than pointing Right. Yeah, the question is, is the prophecy abused in our day? And uh, absolutely. As a matter of fact, prophecy has ceased in the sense of giving any kind of new revelation. There is none. Right. So somebody to call themselves a prophet really is unbiblical in this day and age. However... As we'll see, Christ continues to exercise his prophetic ministry in the proclamation of the word. So that's why our forefathers sometimes called preaching prophesying. Uh, William Perkins, we'll see it, I quote him in here, in his book, The Art of Prophesying. Well, what he's talking about is preaching. Because he understands Christ the prophet speaking through his ministers. These people today, modern evangelicals, don't understand it that way. When they say prophet, they think Isaiah, Daniel, you know. You're not a prophet. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Was there a hand back there? No. Okay. He was eternally appointed and he was historically called. Now, that's important. He was eternally appointed. We just got done saying that, but it's crucial that in history, in time, Jesus was called. In Hebrews 5, the writer says, no one takes this honor for himself. See? <laughs> Getting back to our conversation. These self-proclaimed prophets, don't listen to them. But only when called by God, just as Aaron was, officially, formally, anointed, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Not even Jesus took it upon himself. He waited in the fullness of time to be born, and he waited in the right time to be appointed and ordained. He was called by God eternally and historically. And his call consisted of two parts, his anointing and his inauguration. What do I mean by that? He was set apart and anointed for these offices by the Father and the Holy Spirit. Now, you can probably imagine where this took place, officially. Um, Jesus says, Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming? The Father consecrated him, set him apart from everything else and everybody else to serve as this kind of mediator. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. So he was anointed by the Holy Spirit. And he, in his human nature, received all the gifts and graces necessary to perform his, his office. He was set apart, fully furnished, with all authority and ability his offices, and he was inaugurated into these offices at his birth, but formally installed at his public baptism. That's where he was installed. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, 
And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. That's probably, that is the finest ordination sermon that we've ever heard. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And thankfully, because he's well pleased with Christ, he's well pleased with us. That's the only reason he takes pleasure in us, because we're in Christ. But this is where Jesus was formally, publicly, officially installed in his office as mediator. Inaugurated at his incarnation. He's the mediator. But you'll notice he waited. He didn't grab it. He waited for it and God gave it to him at 30 years of age. So that was an incredible time. And immediately after this, do you know what happened? Yeah, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. That's what it says, drove him. Forced him into the wilderness where he would be tempted as the second Adam to succeed where the first Adam failed. And he had every disadvantage, whereas the first Adam had every advantage. It's incredible. Any questions on, on this part? What, what do you mean he had every disadvantage? Um, he was in a sin-cursed world, whereas Adam was in a paradise of Eden. He fasted. No food. Physically, I'm sure he was weary and weakened. Adam had everything. Every tree of the garden you can eat. So he had, Adam had every advantage and he failed. Christ was under every disadvantage and he succeeded. Yeah. Which is an incredible thing too. <clears throat> In his humanity, it was an incredible test. Okay. And again, as we said, and some of this is a little bit redundant, but it's helpful to see it from different angles. Um, our salvation required these offices. Our salvation required that it be revealed by him as a prophet, obtained by him as a priest, applied by him as a king. So now the spirit of Christ comes and applies this salvation to you and I. He enlightens our minds. He renews and determines our wills. He draws our affections. And we come freely, willingly, gladly. And that's his work as a king. In the post-lapsarian world, post-lapsarian is a very fancy term. It simply means post-fall, after the fall. So now you can go home and use post-lapsarian. It's fantastic. Great lunch conversation. In the post-lapsarian world, no one has held all three offices but Jesus himself. As I said, the first Adam was prophet, priest, and king of creation, but he forfeited through sin. A few held two. Moses and Samuel, for example, were prophets and priests, but they weren't kings. And there's no one else who held all three. This honor in the post-lapsarian world was reserved for Christ. As James Fisher says, this honor was reserved for himself as his peculiar dignity and prerogative. John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. That is the way in my death as a priest, the truth in my word as a prophet, and the life in my spirit as a king. Have you ever seen that verse like that before? Isn't it wonderful? The way, the truth, and the life. The way is through Christ. He's opened up a new and loving way through his flesh, right? Hebrews 9. The truth, he proclaims, the truth will set you free. 
And he has revealed to us everything the Father wants us to know. And the life, as a king reigning supreme, he pours out the Spirit upon his church, and the Spirit gives us the life that Christ has obtained. By executing these three offices, Christ fulfilled what was incumbent upon him as the mediator. He spoke of salvation as a prophet, accomplished it as a priest, and applies it as a king. Any questions on that part? John? Yeah. Well, it's a different emphasis in this particular class. I think you're exactly right that the king does rule and defend his people. He overrules the world and everything in it. He strengthens us and preserves and supports us in all of our temptations and sufferings. He um, overrules his enemies. Satan's on a leash. You know, so he does do that, obviously. But even in his humiliation, we see that as a king, humanly speaking, he did not exercise those prerogatives during his life on earth. They called him the king of the Jews. He was the king. But he wasn't reigning like he is now as the ascended Christ. When he rose from the dead, what did he say to his disciples? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So now he is reigning supreme. We're just focusing in on his work of salvation. And as a king, he bestows and blesses his people with grace. He pours out his spirit, and the spirit of Christ, the king, gives us life. Anybody else before we go on? Okay. Oh, Don? It seems to me that uh, we're talking about the human Christ, not the spiritual Christ. Yes. Absolutely, Don. Well said. In his humanity, he's occupying, but he is a person. Remember, he's a divine person. But in his humanity as our mediator, he is occupying these offices, yeah. Because as God, he never changes. The same yesterday, today, and forever. So yeah, well done. So in executing these offices, he deals with God and man differently. With God... As a priest, he satisfies justice and procures his favor. So his work as a priest deals with God and man. But when it comes to God, he's satisfying all the demands of God's justice. The day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. You deserve to die. There's no question about it. I deserve to die. But those demands are satisfied when Jesus dies. That's what we talk about, what we mean when we say he satisfies justice. And he procures the favor of God. So that God is not just satisfied, he is favorable. He takes pleasure in you. That's that's hard to believe, I know. But it's true. He actually delights in you and me, particularly when we're worshiping. He takes pleasure in his people. As a priest with God, he satisfies justice, procures his favor. Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. To offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Well, he offered the once once for all sacrifice. And he intercedes for us. And our prayers ascend as incense to God through the mediation of Christ. The only reason God accepts your prayer 
is because it goes through Christ. He offered himself to propitiate God on our behalf. That word propitiate, sadly, has been um, lessened in recent decades, over the past 60 years or so, but it is a very valuable word. Propitiate. It simply means to appease the wrath of an angry God. So expiate means to cleanse the sins of a sinner. Expiate is manward. Propitiate is Godward. He's angry with sin, and he's angry with sinners. And somehow we need to appease this angry God. Jesus does it. He propitiates God. He appeases his wrath. When he was on that cross, and human language can't even describe it, not just wrath, the infinite wrath of God was poured out upon Christ. Now, what does that mean? I have no idea. Infinite wrath. We'll spend eternity trying to appreciate what happened on that cross. But that suffering under the infinite weight of God's wrath propitiated him. And he's no longer angry with you, and he's no longer angry with me. He's not up there folding his arms and tapping his foot saying, if you step out of line, I'm going to smite you. No, he's like, I love my child. I am going to lovingly chastise, discipline, train my child. And that child's going to come to heaven, no matter what. He deals with God by appearing in his presence and continually making intercession for us. He prays for us every moment of every day. He deals with man primarily as a prophet and king to bring us to God and eternal salvation. It's important to know that his offices are not to be divided. So... It's not as if, you know, we want to somehow compartmentalize these things too much because he executes them in a saving way as a corpus. That's why I think it's almost better to emphasize his mediatorship and the three functions of prophetic, priestly, and kingly work because it shows us that it's one, it's all together. In other words, you can't have him as priest and not as king. That's what I'm saying. You can't have him as prophet and not as priest, that kind of thing. They should be distinguished, but in the execution of them, they cannot be divided. Whoever is made wise by him as a prophet is redeemed by him as a priest and subdued by him as a king. This gets into the whole idea of election. This is God's work. All those for whom he died as a priest, he'll, he'll enlighten as a prophet and make willing as a king. Those whom he calls as a king are illuminated by him as a prophet and saved to the uttermost by him as a priest. And so his offices are limited to these three. Why do I say that? Well, because there was some question in previous centuries. Well, the scriptures apply to Christ all kinds of titles. Redeemer, Savior, other titles, why, can't, why are we limited to three? Well, because in the Old Testament, there were prophets, priests, and kings, and they were the ones who were anointed. Interestingly enough, in the larger catechism question dealing with this, it says, why was our mediator called Christ? Christ, anointed one. 
And it says in that question that he occupies prophet, priest, and king in his humiliation, exaltation. So the idea is in the divine's minds, these were the ones who were anointed to this work. And so Jesus, as Christ, the anointed one, occupies these three offices. <clears throat> I don't know if that was a debate that you were thinking of, but that's historical. Any questions? Okay. Uh, in both of his estates, he endured humiliation on earth in his birth, life, death, and burial. He enjoys exaltation in his resurrection, ascension, session, and return. <clears throat> session, seated. That's where we get session of the church. We're sitting as a court. And at no time in either one of those estates did he fail to fulfill his duties. During his humiliation, he fulfilled his prophetical duties through teaching and preaching. I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. His prophetical work, he made known the will of his Father. During his humiliation, he also fulfilled his priestly duties by interceding and offering himself. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. So cross and his session where he is interceding. And his humiliation, he fulfilled his kingly duties by demonstrating his power and authority. Blessed is the king, they said, who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. That's when he was his triumphal entry. They acknowledged him as king. And he proved it. <clears throat> power over death, demons, disease, natural disasters, all the powers of nature. He proved that he was king. So getting back to John's question, he did exercise some royal prerogatives throughout his earthly ministry. But not in the same sense as he's doing it now. He reigns supreme, overruling everything as our risen mediator. Um, do the elder, do the current offices of the church have any relation to these offices of Christ? Yes. <clears throat> Thank you. He does um, appoint officers in the church. Those who govern reflect his kingly authority. Those who proclaim the word reflect his prophetic ministry. Those who extend mercy and sympathy reflect his priestly ministry, the deacons. So you have, according to some, teaching elders, ruling elders, and deacons, prophets, priests, and kings. Yeah. But we do see him reigning as a king, even in the church. If you were to ask a question, where do you, on earth do you see his kingship. I mean, in the world about us, he is reigning, but it's invisible, right? Where do you see Jesus as king acknowledged as such? And it's in the church. This is where we voluntarily and gladly bend the knee and confess with the tongue that he is Lord. There's going to come a day when every knee bows and every tongue confesses. But right now, his people are the ones who proclaim his excellencies and acknowledge him as king. And we do so willingly by his grace. By the way, we, we take the Lord's Supper. <clears throat> that is an ongoing affirmation of his kingship. When we give the collection, it's an act of worship now. 
We give the collection, it's a tribute to the king. This money of mine, it's not mine. I'm a steward. It belongs to him. And these first fruits that we give in the collection plate, it acknowledges him as king. That's one of the reasons why we have the collection in worship. It's not the only reason, but it is one of the main reasons. He's king. He's king over my money. He's king over my time, the Lord's day. He's king over my relationships. He king, he's king over everything. And we acknowledge that. We have a distorted idea of what a king looks like because... We don't have one. We have earthly kings who are sinners. Well, that's true, too. They usurp power. They abuse everybody. Right. And Jesus came to show us that a real king is a servant leader and a very different perspective on what kingship should look like. Very good. Exactly. And this king laid down his life for his people, his subjects. Yeah. Yep. Very different king than the ones we're used to in the world. His offices are not the source of the promises. They are the means by which the promises are fulfilled. In other words, God from all eternity loves us and chose us. And these offices are the means by which, through Christ, he saves us. How are we doing? Okay. Um, <clears throat> since ascending to heaven, you might ask, well, what, what goes on now? Well, he continues to exercise his offices. In Acts, you remember, it says, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. That was in Luke's gospel. And now in Acts, he's showing what Jesus continues to do and teach through his church. His prophetic office is expressed in the ministry of the word. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts especially that you may prophesy. Why, Paul? Why would prophecy be the gift that, that you would encourage them to pursue? Well, because it's God's revealing his truth, Christ proclaiming the gospel through the ministry of the word, his prophetic office. Again, here's that quote from Perkins. Preaching in the word is prophesying in the name and on behalf of Christ. And please know he's using that word prophesying in an old-fashioned way. Not in the way that many abuse it today. We are not called to give new truth, but to open up and expound what Christ has already revealed. That's our privilege. That's our delight. His priestly office is now expressed in his continual intercession in heaven on our behalf. He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Meaning, if he didn't intercede for us, we would not be saved. So we often focus upon his cross, his sacrifice, which we should. But equally important is his intercession on our behalf. Every day you and I sin. Every day we need the gift of repentance unto life. Every day we need to have these, these daily sins forgiven and pardoned. So we're thankful that he intercedes for us. His kingly office is expressed visibly in the church, invisibly in his overruling providence. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. He's speaking to the disciples and saying that in the church, you function as my under-shepherds, um, those officers who govern God's people, benevolently, benevolently, sympathetically. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus, <laughs> he, he overrules everything. 
He is a king. Any questions on that before we move on to the last slide? Mary Alice? Yeah, that's in that passage. That's in that passage where he's talking about church discipline. If somebody sins, you go to them individually. Oh, what did I do? Sorry. Uh, if somebody sins individually, take some witnesses, tell it to the church, which means basically the officers of the church. And he's saying the discipline that the church exercises will be the discipline that he's exercising insofar as it's in accord with his word. Very important caveat, because all kinds of churches tyrannize over their people, and they exercise discipline in an unhealthy and unbiblical way, sadly. And we've had some of the carnage. People will never darken the doors of a church because they've been hurt by the tyranny of unlawful discipline. It's a technical term that's used in terms of sins that you bind them, that you, um, you discipline somebody who's unrepentant, and ultimately, if they remain impenitent, you excise them from the congregation. You bind them. You loose them. They're loosed from their burden. You, you pronounce Christ's forgiveness of them and welcome them into fellowship. So it's this technical language of discipline in God's community. The Jews used it. Finally, saving faith as Christians, we receive and rest upon him in all of his offices. We can't take him as Savior and not as Lord. We can't take him as priest and not as king. He can't be divided, must be taken wholly or none at all. You get the whole Christ. You bend the knee Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. I am he. I am your prophet. I am your priest. And I am your king. And you're to live your lives in accord with that. Or at least strive to. There is one God. And there is one mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus. He is the mediator of a new covenant. So that those who called me... So those who called may receive the promised inheritance. That may be wrong. I can't remember what happened there. But anyway, you get the idea. One mediator. For our justification, we need his righteousness and rely upon him as a priest. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. You are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. As by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. All three offices have a relation to us as believers, and in this, you and I can draw comfort. He became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. One of my professors, one of my heroes, Meredith Klein, claims he believes that the primary office that Adam performed was priestly. All three offices he had, but as the priest, he was appointed to guard the sacred sanctuary from any unholy intrusion. I think we've looked at that before. He failed, but that was his primary duty. And Jesus, as our high priest, has done what Adam didn't do, has gone back into heaven, has endured the flaming sword of the cherubim so that he opened up the way to paradise and we can enter in. And that's why we rely upon him as our righteousness. He is our righteousness before a holy God.
Any final questions? Again, some of this was a little redundant, but this idea of his offices, prophet, priest, and king, I think was important. And then we'll go on to look at each office in particular. John? It seems like priestly covers a number of different things. You have intercession, you have forgiveness of sins, you have showing mercy, you have physical guarding, you have taking care of the temple. It's, it's a kind of complex office. Right, it is. You're right. And even some of these offices might even overlap a little bit. You'll see some of that. But it is. It's a complex office. It's a very important one. And uh, was it Peter? He says something like, um, we're, we're new creation and we're living, living stones called to proclaim the excellencies in his temple. And we are the temple of God. So that as an individual, if we can talk about a priestly function, you are to keep the temple of God free from any unholy intrusion. You're to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So as a priest, you keep your body clean. As a priest, you keep your thoughts clean. Now, we don't do it. We fail, which is why, thankfully, we have a high priest. But that's the goal. Our priestly responsibility is to keep this temple pure, to keep out the unholy intrusion of sin and temptation. Anybody else? Rich? Yes. Yes. When he ascended, did he not kind of jettison the Satan from his presence in heaven at that time? We have, and very good point, we have in Revelation a symbolic representation of Satan being cast out of heaven. So the great high priest entering back into heaven cleanses, as it were, the heavenly sanctuary of this unholy intrusion. We saw that he had access in the book of Job no longer. The accuser of the brethren has been thrown down, thankfully. So yeah, very good. I'm glad you brought that up. Okay, well, I've exhausted our time. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for our great Redeemer, Jesus Christ, the prophet, priest, and king of his church. And we ask that you'll help us to embrace him in all of his offices and to be thankful for him and help us as followers of Christ to walk in a manner worthy of such a great and high calling. Prepare us for worship, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.